Hello and welcome to Southbank Centre's book podcast with me, Ted Hodgkinson. Today's special episode brings together insights from an array of acclaimed American authors who appeared recently at Southbank Centre's London Literature Festival in a strand of events anticipating the midterm elections. In this podcast, you'll hear from leading novelists and poets about creating savagely funny satire or even love sonnets from the tumult of the present, reflections on the historical currents that brought us here, and we'll even hear a few anecdotes about encounters with the 45th President of the United States. Salman Rushdie, one of the great chroniclers and conjurers of our age, talks about his new novel, The Golden House, which he began writing before Trump came down that fateful escalator and began his campaign, but which deftly anticipated and sends up the gaudy and gilded world of the current American political scene. It is bookended by the election of Obama and a mercurial character known as the Joker eight years later and develops abiding themes of migration and identity while tackling the slipperiness of truth in a world of fake news. We've got Marilyn Robinson, a writer who in her fiction and essays has long plumbed the religious, racial and historic depths below the surface of American life, while also through the sheer beauty of her writing, restoring our sense of wonder. Drawing on her luminous recent book of essays, What Are We Doing Here?, she reflected on the underlying shifts in American cultural values and how they are shaping the present. We'll also hear from American academic Sarah Churchwell, whose new book, Behold America, uncovers the history behind the phrases America First and the American Dream and shows how language shapes the country's highest ideals and reveals the darkest corners of its past. We'll begin with award-winning American poet Terence Hayes, whose new collection, American Sonnets for My Past and Future Assassin, is a surprisingly tender response to the twists and turns of the present. Here Hayes reflects on why he decided to write love sonnets during the first 200 days of Trump's presidency and what makes them distinctively American. What I love about the sonnet form is that it has to have love in it. So whatever you know about the sonnet, whatever you think about it, if you think it has a rhyme or it has the scan, we would all agree that the principle underneath the sonnet is always love. So what that means is that would be a good form to use if you wanted to write about, you know, someone trying to kill you. <laughs> or America or Trump or, you know, any force, because what that means is like, no matter what I'm doing, it's always a sonnet. And so how it's American is what I love about the sonnet is the volta that comes in it. So, you know, you go 12 and you got your two lines, you change your mind. Or you go like eight, you know, two quatrains, change your mind. You got six more lines to play around and get out of the poem. So that's like a turn. That is a volta when you, voltas of acoustics. But, you know, Americans, I mean, obviously we're always changing our minds. Like, how do you go from like Barack Obama to Donald Trump? Like, <laughs> man, volta, 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 volta. <laughs> so the poems kind of work like that. Like, I thought what would make it American would be that it would have to keep turning. So one minute I'm like half talking about Jim Crow that I'm not. I'm talking about meat grinders and birds. And so the poems are kind of just like they have a lot of shifts in them because I feel like it's a very shifty, unstable notion, this notion of American, who gets to say they're American, you know, what that means. So how about I just read y'all the poem on the back of the book? <laughs> That's why I put it there. <laughs> American sonnet for my past and future assassin. I lock you in an American sonnet that is part prison, part panic closet, a little room in a house set of flame. I lock you 
in a form that is part music box, part meat grinder to separate the song of the bird from the bone. I lock your persona in a dream-inducing sleeper hold while your better selves watch from the bleachers. I make you both Jim and Crow here. As the crow, you undergo a beautiful catharsis trapped one night in the shadows of the gym. As the gym, the field of crow shit dropping to your floors is not unlike the stars falling from the pep rally posters on your walls. I make you a box of darkness with a bird in its heart. Voltas of acoustics, instinct, and metaphor. It is not enough to love you. It is not enough to want you destroyed. While Hayes began writing his sonnets after Trump was inaugurated, the first stirrings of Salman Rushdie's novel The Golden House took shape before he announced his run for presidency. As Rushdie reflects on here, it was as if the novel knew the outcome of the election long before he did. The thing that is weirdest about this book, you know, is that when I started writing it, Nobody was thinking about Trump. And then, when the thing started, the, the, the phenomenon of Trump started, I realized that I had a character who was a corrupt billionaire who had made his money in the real estate business and who liked to have his name very big on buildings and had a much younger Eastern European trophy wife. I thought, what? <laughs> it's as if the thing had jumped off the pages of my book Yes. Into the real world. And then I thought, okay, now that I see that those parallels are there, then I have to not pretend that I don't see them. But one thing I think that you, you, know, you, you say, there's a wonderful um, passage where you say, you write about America's secret identity being revealed. Yeah. And normally we think of that as being, it's the superhero. But this is a supervillain. What I felt then, and I think I still feel, is that what happened in the election is an effect rather than a cause. That, that the enormous division in America and the darkness that rose up in America as a result of the election of a black president, the revulsion against that by sections of white America, that would have been true whoever won the election. And I wanted to look at that, that rift in the country, you know, and the young man who is the narrator of the novel is, is really the one major character in the novel who is not an immigrant. And he is very agonized about his country. And that's what he's agonized, it's not so much specifically this individual that, that is the problem, but this larger it's issue. It's the broader. The larger issue of, the, of this, uh, this divided self that, that America has become. While the election has laid bare the divisions in America, Academic Sarah Churchwell offers a closer look at how they have been present in American life from the very inception of the country. Or perhaps even it is this tension that continues to propel the American project forwards, even if it's not in a straight line. I think that anything that says that it's united as often as our country does is clearly divided. We keep asserting that unitedness in order to try to push back against how divided we always have been. And those fights over the Constitution in 1789 were fights about how divided we were. I mean, it barely managed to become the United States, and we've been hanging on ever since, you know? So I don't know if I take hope or despair from that. 
whether it means that we're inevitably going to divide eventually and we just keep kind of managing to kind of cobble it together, or whether in fact that is the dialectic of American history and that we do keep moving forward. And yeah, I do take hope from Obama. I do, he got there, we did it for eight years. And the worst thing that he did in his presidency, I mean, you know, in terms of the way he was talked about, you may disagree with parts of his policy and lots of people do, and I certainly do. But the, but the biggest scandal was that he wore a tan suit, you know? He did it, his family did it. And so, you know, I do take hope from that, that we're moving in the right direction. I take hope from the fact that the, that the number of polls that showed that, um, that if only young people had voted in 2016, Hillary would have won by 94%, right? Um, I take hope from the fact that my 16-year-old nephew, who can't wait to vote in 2020, has absolutely no problem with the black family in the White House because that is his only political memory. That is his only knowledge of the United States. He doesn't have anything else. So that whole generation saw that kind of civility and plurality and tolerance and dignity and discipline in a black family in the White House, and that to them is totally normal, and this is the aberration, and they want this gone. So, you know, Obama told Adam Gopnik after the election that history moves in zigzags, and I think he's right, and we're zagging. We're zagging hard. And the question is, can we zig back? So, as America zags hard, who are the writers who can help it zig back? Marilyn Robinson is a salutary and steadying presence in American cultural life, who often illuminates the historical and religious patterns that underpin the present. She argues here that the tumultuous, unpredictable situation not just America but much of the Western world has found itself in has been caused by a shift in our cultural values. I think it's, uh, there's been a strange slippage in, in Western thinking, I think, away from, from the idea of the mystery of the soul, which could take very strange forms. There's no question about that. Uh, but nevertheless, the assumption was that everyone was living out a pilgrimage uh, that had an ultimate meeting that was outside the terms of value that are, uh, that are generated within the world. At best, this kind of thinking was, was important. Um, we have got now, I think, because we have sort of banished the idea of larger meanings, uh, I hope we haven't, but it seems like that sometimes, people have become competitors at a very low level of human well, existence, I think, you know. Um, and I, I uh, think that we have gone from the idea of the preciousness of, a, of an individual soul as a sort of a chalice of sacred meaning and intent to the idea of us as, frankly, uh, economic units who either consume or sell or invest or something of the sort um, and, frankly, are not particularly reverent toward all those people whose lives are affected by anything anyone does who's in a position to make these kinds of judgments or act on this scale. The slippage in Western thinking that Robinson is describing is a perception that Churchwell also locates further back in American literary history. The Great Gatsby, F. Scott Fitzgerald's prescient novel of the 1920s, as Churchwell describes here, dramatises the ravaging effects of capitalism on the American soul and also pinpoints how America's troubled history of slavery, segregation and racism plays into the bargain. I wanted to make sure that this book didn't just keep circling back to Gatsby, but Gatsby is just, it is, there's a reason why 
Um, it's the kind of magical book that it is, and it does have a lot to say, not just about the American dream, which is how everybody obviously um, interprets it and, and knows about it, but also about the ideas of America first, about white supremacy. I have a little passage about it. I had to, you might want to remember that Donald Trump is from Queens when I um, read this. Much of the action of Gatsby occurs in the area in Queens where the novel's plutocratic villain, Tom Buchanan, has a mistress named Myrtle Wilson. The Buchanans live on Long Island where, as Fitzgerald was well aware, the Ku Klux Klan was busily burning crosses to terrorize African Americans when the action of the story takes place. The Klan had spread to, the, to Long Island. And, and Fitzgerald watched it. He was living there and he saw the Klan on Long Island. Tom Buchanan is a white supremacist. Spouting eugenicist nonsense, he's learned from books about Nordicism. Nordicism was a, was a, a eugenics idea, and basically whenever I say Nordicism here, just think Aryanism. It's basically, it was used exactly equivalently. Um, and in fact, Hitler got his ideas for the Nuremberg Laws from America's race laws. They're very, very uh, intertwined. Um, so Nordicism is a, is a th theory of scientific racism and white supremacism. And he's been reading, and they were very popular, so he's been reading these books. And here's what he says. This is Tom Buchanan at the dinner party in chapter one. Many of you will remember this speech. He says, the idea is if we don't look out, the white race will be, will be utterly submerged. It's all scientific stuff. It's been proved. It's up to us who are the dominant race to watch out, or these other races will have control of things. Mocked by his dinner companions, Tom tries to defend his scientific theories. We're Nordics. I am, and you are, and you are. And we've produced all the things that go to make civilization, oh, science and art and all that. He trails off in confusion, unable to defend the inanity of scientific racism. By the end of the novel, Fitzgerald has underscored Buchanan's stupidity. There is no confusion like the confusion of a simple mind, he says. Fitzgerald's allusion to an American dream arrives primarily in the novel's famous concluding passage as Nick Carraway looks out over the Atlantic and becomes, and this is Fitzgerald, aware of the old island here that flowered once for Dutch sailors' eyes, a fresh green breast of the new world. Its vanished trees, the trees that had made way for Gatsby's house, had once pandered in whispers to the last and greatest of all human dreams. For a transitory, enchanted moment, man must have held his breath in the presence of this continent, there's your Keats, compelled into an aesthetic contemplation he neither understood nor desired, face to face, for the last time in history, with something commensurate to his capacity for wonder. Gatsby had come a long way to get there, the passage goes on, and his dream must have seemed so close that he could hardly fail to grasp it. He did not know that it was already behind him, somewhere back in that vast obscurity beyond the city where the dark fields of the Republic rolled on under the night. The concept of the American dream of individual aspiration and its diminution into materialism could be said to emerge here in Fitzgerald's novel. Many have argued that it does. If so, then at the moment the American dream we know is intimated, it has already vanished back into the past, into the rolling fields of a dark republic. Fitzgerald was responding to a culture that had for 20 years at least been arguing for a larger American dream, one that protected the American creed against the encroachments of the mechanistic spirit that was overtaking the country. Fitzgerald captures a moment when materialism was taking hold of the dream. He registered it and saw what its costs would be, the death of hope and endless disappointment, the loss of wonder, not the realization of it. Gatsby's famous ending, in other words, describes the narrowing of the American dream from a vision of infinite human potential 
to an avaricious desire for the kind of power wielded by stupid white supremacist plutocrats who inherited their wealth and can't imagine what to do with it beyond using it to display their dominance. Without quite using the phrase American dream, Fitzgerald evoked the trajectory it had begun to follow nationally, from a dream of justice, liberty, and equality to a justification for selfishness and greed. The American dream was emerging as a way to describe what the country was betraying, namely its ideals. This is why it is a dream Fitzgerald carefully connects, not to the religious beliefs of the Puritans, but to the commercial ambitions of Dutch merchants. Most people, in my experience, think he's remembering the Puritans landing at Plymouth Rock, but he's specifically remembering the Dutch merchants who came to New York, to Long Island. The Dutch merchants are there because the novel is suggesting that economic opportunism is what will destroy the capacious American dream, not what will realize it. Idealism is killed by unrestrained capitalism. Jay Gatsby's potential for greatness is corrupted by a nation that teaches him only to desire the trappings of wealth and luxury, while Tom Buchanan's inherited capital grants him virtually unlimited domination, which is indistinguishable from white supremacy. In other words, Buchanan's white supremacy is no passing detail. It is central to Fitzgerald's conception of how power in America works, his clear recognition that American industrial capitalism was built on the immoral inheritance of slave, of slave labor. From the grandeur and beauty of Gatsby's lost American dream to a bitingly satirical look at the present and a rude awakening that even the 45th president himself didn't expect. Nobody expected this, including, I think, the 45th president. <laughs> Indeed. And Certainly if, not his wife. If you, if you look at the... If you look at the um, television footage of that night, nobody is as shocked as Trump. He's got this look on his face going, what? You're going to have to do this job? And you remember soon after he, he got the job, he complained in an interview that it was much harder than the job he'd done before. As if it was a surprise to him. Yeah, anyway, we were all, yeah, it was a bad night. It was a bad I, night. That night, the New York Times had an evening event, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m., just before the polls closed. And the invited audience, I was there, and, and they had all their heavy hitters, you know, the, the editor of the newspaper, all the main political commentators, everybody, talking about what had happened and what was going to happen, and not one of them had a clue what was about to happen. They no, were, they were saying they were, they were 91% say, chance yeah, yeah. that and they were, and they were saying, you know, we've been, we've been talking in the paper about what tomorrow's headline should be. Mm. And we've decided, after much debate, that it should be Madam President. This is at 8 p.m. At 10 p.m., Trump is president. At 8 p.m., the New York Times didn't know. You know, that's how crazy it was. Yeah. You know, um, and what is weirder than that? is that, as I say, I was amongst the people who thought it wasn't going to happen. You know, I went and voted that day, and, and I thought, we'll have a woman president tonight. I thought that. My book didn't think that. No. All the time I Your was writing, the, the book knew. The book was demanding that the other thing happened. There's a thing in, in one of the Hemingway bullfighting texts, I, can't, I don't remember which one, he has a line where he says, the great bullfighter works closest to the bull. You know, yes. Let's say if the bull is over there, I mean, it's safe, but it's not particularly exciting. If the bull is like brushing your thigh, 
then you have to be really good or you get a horn in your, in unpleasant places. Um, and, and that working up against the present moment felt to me a bit like that. It felt like working very close to the bull, where the risk is very great. But if you do it properly, then it looks good. I suppose, I mean, it made me really want to know about the timing yeah. of the writing of this oh, novel. Well, you see, here's a strange thing. Normally, it takes me a while after I finish a book before I know what I'm doing next. This time, I finished the previous book, Two Years, Eight Months, 28 Nights, which, if you do the math, as we say in New York, that's 1,001 nights. When, when it came out, some, because always, you know, there's always a smart ass. So, so, so somebody at an event like this where there are no smart asses. Um, <laughs> Be warned. Yeah, somebody said, yeah, but it doesn't work if there's a leap year. <laughs> and I said, well, the answer to that question is there's no fucking leap year. <laughs> anyway, that's also a New York novel. Also quite a contemporary novel, but it's a kind of fairy tale of New York. Yes. You know, with genies and things. And when I finished it, I had this almost immediate reaction to go in a very different direction. So then I had this idea of trying to write another contemporary New York novel, but that would be like a largely speaking realistic social novel. There is a character in this novel called the Joker. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I didn't want the name of the 45th president. We don't say it. <laughs> um, uh, to, to be in my book. I just, I thought it was a polluted in some way. You know, in a deck of playing cards, there's only two cards that don't behave properly. And one of them is the Trump. <laughs> and the other is the Joker. The other is the Joker. <laughs> so, so I thought, well, I don't want the Trump, so I'll have the Joker. <laughs> Another matador come writer who likes to work close to the bull, to borrow Rushdie's quotation of Hemingway, is Terence Hayes. One of the strikingly similar choices both of these authors made was that while writing with skewering precision about the 45th president of the United States, neither wanted to use his name in their work. In this poem, though he is never referred to by name, Hayes invokes him through a series of swaggering internal rhymes. American sonnet for my past and future assassin. The umpteenth thump on the rump of a badunkadunk stumps us. The lunk, the chump, the hunk of plunder, the umpteenth horny, honky stomp speech pumps a funky rumble over air. The umpteenth slump in our humming democracy, our bumble bureaucracy with teeny tiny wings for its small rumpled dumpling of a body. Humpty Dumpty, frumpy suit. The umpteenth honk of hollow thunder. The umpteenth believe me. The umpteenth grumpy, jumpy retort. Chump change, casino game, tuxedo, teeth bleach, stomp speech. Junk science, junk bond, jump country, stomp speech. The umpteenth boast stumps our toe. The umpteenth falsehood stumps our elbows and eyeballs, our nose and woes and wows and woes. 
the unmistakable portrait of the unnamed president giving his umpteenth stump speech in a frumpy suit is a stark and uncanny vision of the grinding rhythm of the current American political scene. For all the rambunctious energy of the poem, the picture it presents is undeniably bleak. At times like these, it's tempting to lapse into pessimism, but Marilyn Robinson calls us to resist this temptation and asks us instead to contemplate the more transcendent aspects of human activity and creativity. If I could agree that pessimism is appropriate, you know, but I'm not pessimistic, I would be, I would be uh, assuming a posture that is not authentic for me. I, again, you know, I am religious. I do believe that uh, all of this wonderfulness is not for nothing that all of these obscure lives, mistreated lives and so on, are ultimately cherished. Um, I, which of course does not in any way change the ethical obligation to honor them while, while we live. Um, I don't, you know, here we are, look at this. Look at this bunch of people. We have in every skull in this room, is a human brain, which is the most complex object known to exist in the universe. I mean, when just, you know, you think about that. You own and operate the most complex instrument to exist in the universe. And that's just the brain. Think about the nervous system and everything that goes with it. But in any case, uh, you know, the, to me, this completely unaccountable flowering of all the complexity that seems, of, of, you know, of a great part of the complexity that seems to be implicit in the universe but expressed nowhere else. This is all of us, you know? We love music, you know? We love our cats and dogs. We love each other. We, are, we, we can make up uh, poetry that it moves other people to tears, you know? This is so incredibly valuable, intrinsically, undeniably valuable, that to act, for me to act as if pessimism were appropriate when I'm in the middle of what I take to be overwhelmingly miraculous, it's not an impulse of mine. I don't subscribe. The miraculous vision of the here and now that Robinson describes may seem a far cry from the tawdry realities of fake news and Twitter controversies that abound in our polarising present. Anger appears to be mounting on all sides. And yet, as Terence Hayes describes here, it's possible to glean layers of meaning from the rising anger of contemporary America and even offer a creative response to it. I was very struck by a phrase you used, which is that anger is a form of heartbreak. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and obviously there's anger on all sides in, of this. There's anger everywhere you look. Mm -hmm. I wondered if that was fair, whether we, whether we should think of it in those terms. Think, think of, so so if, you, you know, if you think about sort of dispossessed, poor, mm -hmm. uh, white working class who vote for Trump, right. whether if we thought of them as heartbroken, sure. it would change it. Oh, yeah. yeah. Heart, I mean, just people can have the wrong loves. You can love mm -hmm. a bad idea, 
So they could be heartbroken at the loss and maybe overjoyed now as something that seems to be the fulfillment of, a, again, this notion of an American dream or American future. But this notion that I want to get at, which is um, if anger is always a response to something, it just makes the enemy a bit more human as opposed to something that's easy to kill. I mean, because you just think like, I mean, what are your responses to uh, any kind of moment, you know, mm -hmm. any moment, Me Too movement, racism, uh, anything like silence, which is like, don't say anything, it'll go away. And we are finding out that a lot of women have had to live like that. Or it could be violence, that is an option, just to like punch back in whatever way, kick, scratch, whatever you gotta do in response to this enemy. And then there's another one, which is just like more creative. So under the umbrella of creativity is love, obviously. I mean, that's all love is, is you know, creating. Um, how about I just stop there? Like that notion of like a response to it might be something about like just trying to make something out of it, trying to do something, even like sonnets, just trying to make sonnets as a response, as opposed to violence and as opposed to silence. So does that like solve anything? No, but it gets at, it comes out of like, well, if anger is a form of heartbreak, then I can just think a little bit longer and more fully about how we are supposed to move into the future which maybe is going to just be like the past anyway. Like, what if that's true? Like, there is no straight line towards one day racists wake up and say, oh, man, I was wrong. Yeah. You know what I mean? So if that's true, we might be going at the wrong, looking at the wrong way of handling this. Like, our, the notion of, like, eliminating and destroying an enemy might not actually be the right way to fix it. Across these talks, what was abundantly clear was the integral role that language itself plays in shaping the dreams and realities of American life. As Hayes articulates here, poetry and literature can also create a space in which the wounds of the present might just be healed. American sonnet for my past and future assassin. Our sermon today concerns the dialectic blessings in transgression and transcendence. We're on the middle floor where the darkness we bury is equal to the lightness we intend. We stand in the valley and go to our knees on the mountain. One rope pulls a body down and into earth, the other pulls up and after stars. To be divided is to be multiplied. Let us ponder how it is that you and I have remained alive. Mississippi and all the seas bound to sky by rain, the root and reach of all the trees. When the wound is deep, the healing is heroic. Suffering and descendants require the same work. Our sermon today sets the beauty of sin against the purity of dirt. I'm going to finish with one of my favorite moments of the festival when Salman Rushdie told us about the time he met Donald Trump. I knew him. I met him, you know. Did you? Yeah, he was very nice to me. <laughs> when did you meet him? I met him three times. I'll tell you very quickly. Yes, please. The first time I met him, this dates him as well as me, was at a Crosby, Stills and Nash concert <laughs> at, at, at Madison Square Garden. And he was there with his kids. 
I mean, this was like the year 2000, it was a long time ago. And so he's much younger, the two horrible boys, much younger. And, you know, Ivanka, like, kind of jailbait. And, and <laughs> we happened to be sitting near each other. And the thing, concert started, and he was on his feet. He knew all the words to all the songs. Really? I thought, you know, Donald Trump knows the words to Woodstock. That doesn't, didn't sound right. It didn't, didn't feel like something wrong with the world. <laughs> Teach your children well. You yes. Know? That didn't work. Um, <laughs> anyway, that's, I met him there. Yeah, I met him at this event where he, it was at the time of the, the tennis, the US Open, you know, and he said, did I like tennis? And I said, yeah, I did. And, and then, you know, nicely, he said, if I ever want to use his box, then I'd be welcome to do so. And even then, this is long before his political ambitions, I thought, you know, for me to be in Donald Trump's box is a career-ending move. <laughs> After that, it's over. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and, yeah. and of course, being Donald Trump, he couldn't just say, you're welcome to use my box. He had to say, you know, you should really see my box. Because... Is it, is it huge? It's, 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 better it's, than all the, it's, it's better than all the other boxes. It's, it's like a really special box. You know, this gesture, which, which um, I think Jimmy Kimmel described this as pinching an invisible nipple. <laughs> <laughs> it's just one of those images that when you've seen it, you can't unsee it. No. <laughs> so, the other time I saw him was in backstage at the Metropolitan Opera. Um, and he's coming towards me down this corridor. And as he came towards me, he went like this. He went, you the man. <laughs> now, fortunately, I knew the correct response to this, which was, no, Donald, you're the man. <laughs> then he was happy. So, so in some way, I was the man, but I don't think it had anything to do with actual literary merit. You know, merit. Anyway, so this is, this is my, my okay. old friendship with Donald Trump, which I suspect is over. I suspect. <laughs> Although he's not a reader. He might he's not a reader, this, no. You know. But somebody could tell him. <laughs> I've been waiting for the tweet. Yeah. You the know. failing Salman Rushdie. Yes, 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 exactly. <laughs> sad. Sad, sad. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Next time we're bringing you a special episode distilling down the epic that was the live reading of the Odyssey, plus a talk with Madeleine Miller and Charlene Teo about women rewriting the Odyssey, and we'll bring you insights on the origins and why the Odyssey still matters today. Make sure you subscribe so as not to miss out on the next episode. You can find that, plus other episodes, at southbankcentre.co.uk forward slash podcasts.